Hallelujah. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. I want to start the end of Hebrews chapter 10. Now in Hebrews chapter 10, says here in verse 37, for yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and he will not tarry. You know, sometimes people say, if the Lord tarries, that means if the Lord waits. And it, it seems to me from this verse that the Lord has a set timetable about when he is going to return, and he's not going to tarry. So it says that tarry means to wait. So the Lord will not wait. He has a timetable, he'll follow the timetable. He said, for yet a little while, and he that shall come will come. That means when it's time for the return of Jesus, Jesus is going to return, and he will not tarry. But then verse 38 tells us what we shall do. Verse 37 is what Jesus will do. He was, he's going to come back. He's going to return. But verse 38 talks about what we will do. It says, now the just shall live by faith. This is what we shall do as believers, and we are the ones who have been justified. It says, now the just shall live by faith. Now, it's not talking about that the just shall learn to use faith when it is needed, or that the just shall just act in faith in a time of crisis, but the just shall live by faith. That means that you, your whole life is so permeated and saturated with faith that you eat, drink, live, think, breathe faith. That's what it means. The judge shall live by faith. That faith is your life. And, and it's not just something you do, but it's you live by faith. It, it permeates your thinking. It, it's part, faith, when faith is part of your DNA, you shall live by faith. And then it says, now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. That means if anybody says, you know what, this faith business, you know, just too much pressure on me. I've got other things going on in life. I, I, I don't want to, you know, live by faith all the time. Well, it says, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. And I will not be pleased with him. But verse 39, the writer of the book of Hebrews, he says, but we are not of them who draw back unto perdition. Perdition means destruction. He said, we are not those of those who, who draw away from the life of faith. Because if we do that, that leads to destruction. Yeah. He says, but we are of them who, that believe to the saving of the soul. In my Swedish Bible, it says, we are those who win. The man of faith, the woman of faith is always a winner because faith always wins. Amen. We are of those who believe and we win. Amen. So it's talking about faith and this, it gets into the next chapter. He says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Now there's a lot to be said. There's a whole message right there and I don't want to get into it because there's a, this whole 
Hebrews 11, I could take, do a five-day seminar on it if I went into everything. So I'm going to jump over, you know, about, over some things. So if you say, well, why doesn't he talk about that? It's precisely for that reason. I don't want to keep you here until breakfast. <laughs> so it says now, but, but, you know, it says, but now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen for. By it, the elders obtained a good report. So what he's saying is that by faith, the elders, the elders are people who live before us, people who serve God before us, those who were, who went before us. And, and Hebrews 11 is actually a list of people who have passed on before us. And it says they obtained a good report, yeah. which, is, which is really something because, you see, the Bible is a, uh, is a testimony of God and His glory. But Hebrews 11 is unique in the sense that it is God testifying of men and women of faith who pleased him by their faith. The whole Bible is a testimony of men talking about God. But Hebrews 11 is God testifying of men who pleased him by faith. So it's a, it's a, it's a big deal to end up on this list. Right? It's not everybody who ends up on the list, but it was men and women by, of faith who ended up on the list. And uh, I'm going to jump over to verse 6, and it tells us why. It says, for without faith it is impossible to please him. Now, the word please actually means to reach him. Without faith, it is impossible to reach God, to touch him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is. Not that he was and he shall be, but God is. And that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That God is not only that he is, but he rewards those who diligently seek him. So here it talks about men and women who please God. He says they obtained a good report. God testifying of men and women of faith who pleased him by their faith. So now if we look at these men and women of faith, we will see uh, different, well, I can call it types of faith. Or you can call it perspectives of faith. Because all these men and women of God, their faith was shown forth in a different way. They were not all the same. And, it's, and each one is different on how they ended up on this list. So faith is a very wide thing. So here it talks about how these men and women please God. And God commended them for their faith. So we are talking about types of faith or perspectives of faith. So let's look at this list. Verse 4. The first one on this list is a man called Abel. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. Abel has been gone for 6,000 years almost, but his faith still speaks today. And so what was the story of Abel? offering a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. 
Well, Abel and Cain were the first two children of Adam and Eve. And it came time to sacrifice to God. And uh, now I'm paraphrasing my own words. And, and, and Cain, he took, a, he took some fruits and vegetables that he had grown and made a beautiful fruit basket. And he brought his fruit basket and it looked so beautiful. And he put it before God, put it on the altar. And then his brother Abel, when it was turn, his turn to offer unto God, he thought, I must give to God the very best that I have. I must give him something which is not just a gift, but which is a sacrifice. So he went to where he used to keep his flocks and he looked over his flocks and he saw the little lamb that he loved very much. He used to carry this lamb on his shoulder everywhere he went. And he said, this lamb is the thing that is most precious to me. So he took that lamb and it really hurt him to sacrifice that to God. So with tears running down his cheeks, he, he cut the throat of that lamb. He'll kill that lamb. And he brought that lamb that he had slaughtered and put it on the altar. And it cost him so much. It hurt him to make that sacrifice. And so God looked at Cain's gift and he looked at Abel's sacrifice. And God accepted Abel's sacrifice and rejected Cain's gift. And that was the reason for the first fratricide, the first murder. Abel killed his brother Cain because he was jealous because God accepted Abel's sacrifice but rejected Cain's gift. So faith, we learn from this, this scripture, is that faith is a sacrifice. Faith isn't just giving. Anybody can give a gift. But faith is a sacrifice. And we see that in God's dealings with man, when it was time for God to give something to us, the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Can you imagine what it must have cost him? His only begotten son. He had only one son who he loved very much. And he looked at us who were lost as sinners. And he said, I am going to give my son to save them. I will not send another prophet like Abraham or Moses or whatever, but I'm going to give them my very best. And he took his only son and sacrificed him, took our sins and put them upon him and had, and God had him nailed to the cross. He let his own son die to save us from our sins. Faith is a sacrifice. Amen. So this is the first thing, first perspective of faith. Faith is a sacrifice. The second example we see here is in verse 5, the next verse. But, you know, going back to this, I just can't get over the fact that Abel, you know, Abel never did anything great. He never evangelized, never went anywhere, never preached. And we know very little about him. But that one act of faith, that one sacrifice propelled him from obscurity. 
to being the first one on the list of the heroes of faith by his sacrifice. The second one is Abel, uh, Enoch. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had translated him, but for before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. So let's look at the faith of Enoch. Enoch, actually I did some study in the scripture and I found out that I think Enoch was six or seven generations from Adam. And Adam was still alive when Enoch was a child. So the two must have met. Because Enoch was still a child, Adam was an old man. So I can see little Enoch coming to great-great-grandpa and sitting on his lap and asking great-great-grandpa, Grandpa, tell us what it was like when you were little. And Adam began to tell him, well, there was a time when I was young. We didn't live here. We lived in a place called the Garden of Eden. It's a beautiful place. But the greatest thing about the Garden of Eden was that God was there. And I walked with God. Enoch said, you walked with God? You mean the unseen God who we worship? He said, yeah. I walked with him every day and he used to talk to me. And it was wonderful. But I blew it. So we ended up here. So Enoch began to think, Grandpa blew it, I didn't. So Enoch began to seek God. He began to walk with God. So he was different to all the other kids. All the other kids wanted to do their thing, but Enoch wanted to walk with God. And as he walked with God, he grew closer and closer to God. And he used to go off alone. He could see Enoch walking alone in the fields where everybody was doing other things and Enoch. And Enoch, you know, he just talked to God. He used to talk to God speaking to God every day. And God used to talk to him. And he saw got so close to God that one day God said to Enoch, he said, you know, you know, we meet like this every day. Why don't you come over to where I live? <laughs> Enoch said, let's go. So the Bible says Enoch walked with God. And Enoch was no more because God took him. Enoch never died. He, God just took him home. And as far as I know, Enoch is still walking with God. For 6,000 years, he's walking with God. So that's the second perspective of faith. Faith is to walk with God. Faith is walking with God. We walk with men, we walk with people, but faith is to walk with God. Enoch had this deep longing within him to walk with God. And he attained it, he walked with God. And God took him and he was no more. Now verse number seven, the third man on this list. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. God told Abraham, I'm sorry, God told Noah, 
No, I'm going to destroy the earth because of their sins. Make an ark and I'm going to save you and your household and those who believe you. And in Enoch, it says, move with fear. And the word fear actually means reverence before God. Noah was moved with the fear of God. Then we say faith is the opposite of fear. Yes, it is. But this is another kind of fear. It's the fear of God. It's a good thing to walk in the holy fear of God. Noah walked in the holy fear of God. He was moved by the holy fear of God. He knew God was a holy God. And there was, that sin was rampant upon this earth. And when God spoke up, Noah obeyed. And God said, build an ark. And he built an ark. It had never rained. And everyone thought he was a fool. But he, he was moved by holy fear. And sometimes holy fear will make you do things that are not rational. It was not rational to build an ark, in a, especially when it had never rained. Nobody knew what he was talking about when he said there's going to be a flood and I'm getting out of here. But he did. And then it says, and in building that ark, it says he condemned the world. He condemned the sin of the world and he became heir of the righteousness of God, which is by faith. So here's the third aspect of faith. Faith is to be moved by the fear of God. Faith is a sacrifice. Faith is to walk with God. And faith is to be moved by the fear of God. The next person on the list is a man called Abraham. Verse 8, by faith Abraham, when, we know, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance obeyed and he went out not knowing whither he went. So faith, this is the next perspective, the next type of faith. Faith is to obey God and leave everything and go wherever he wants you to go. God just told him, I'm going to take you to another country, another land. Didn't give him a road map, didn't give him a plan, didn't tell him anything. He said, just go. And Abraham went. And it didn't end there because it says here in verse 9, by faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now this is amazing. Because God had promised Abraham this land that was overflowing with milk and honey. And God said, I'm going to take you to this land and I'm going to give it to you. This is what the land is going to be like and it's going to be all yours. And you know, Abraham's journey of faith, he, he, he went there, you know. But the, the thing is that Abraham walked with God. And during that journey of faith, his interactions with God changed him. It changed him. It changed Abraham. So the reason Abraham left his father's country and came to this country was for that land that God had, had promised him. But 
during his journey of faith, not just the physical journey, but the journey of faith, his, his relationship with God, his God dealing with him. By the time Abraham came to that land, he suddenly had a vision of another city. So he was not really satisfied with what God had promised him. Abraham stood on that land that God had promised him. But he says, by faith, he sojourned in the land of promise. The word sojourn means to dwell somewhere as a temporary dweller. Like when I came here, Pastor Mark took me to the hotel. That hotel room has everything. It has a bathroom, it has a bed, it has everything I need. But I don't, I'm not living here. I'm sojourning here because this is not my home. I'm just passing through. I'm here as a temporary dweller. So when Abraham came to this land that God had promised him, that God had given him, he was so changed on the inside because of his walk with God that when he came to that land, it wasn't really what he wanted. His entire vision had changed. So that's why he lived in that land as a temporary dweller, as a stranger, and he never even built a house, he lived in a tent. And so he never built a permanent dwelling for himself. He dwelt as a temporary dweller, sleeping in a tent. And not only him, but his son and his grandson had the same attitude. He passed that on to them. So his son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob, for three generations, they slept in tents. Because they said, this is not it. You know why? Because it says here, verse 10, for he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Hallelujah. So heaven, Abraham's earthly vision was transformed into a heavenly vision. He was looking, it was no longer about that land. And right now as I'm talking, the Palestinians and the Jews are at it again. It's all about the land. I wish they could be like Abraham. I wish they knew the God of Abraham. And they realized this is not it. This is not worth living for and fighting for, dying for. But there's a greater city. Abraham looked for a city. Hallelujah. And we, as Christians, as we walk with Jesus, faith for us is to look for that city. Hallelujah. I'm looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. You know, that should put things into perspective when it comes to material things and earthly things. We need material things to preach the gospel. And by the way, thank you for your offerings. We, we need those things to preach the gospel. But that's not what we live for. That's not what we live for. We are looking for a city, hallelujah. So faith is to look for that city. Faith is to have a heavenly vision. Faith is to be transformed in your inner man. So your earthly vision is replaced by a heavenly vision. That was a story of Abraham. Anyway, we keep on moving on. And then it says here, Let's, let's jump to verse 22. 
He said, by faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Now, this is very special because, see, God had promised them the land and they finally ended up in Egypt. You know, the whole story of Joseph and there was famine in the land and Joseph said, come, and they came to Egypt and they ended up in Egypt and the Israelites were in Egypt for 400 years. They were slaves for 400 years far away from their inheritance. And Joseph, he was at the beginning of those 400 years, but he could never let go of that vision of the promised land. He couldn't let go of it. So that is why before he died, he gave the Israelites a commandment concerning his bones. Can you imagine the man could see beyond his death? He says, when I die and you bury me here, I don't want my bones to be in the land of Egypt forever, but I want my bones to be in the land that God promised my forefathers. So promise me one thing, that when the day comes, when we leave Egypt and go to the promised land, you're going to exhume my bones. You're going to dig up my bones and carry my bones to the promised land and bury me there. And so the bones of Joseph were in the sand of Egypt for 400 years. And finally, when the day of deliverance came, when Moses took the people of Israel, you see it, it's in the Bible, I'm not making this up. When Moses was leading the people of Israel out of Egypt, in the, you know, uh, towards, towards the Red Sea, to cross the Red Sea, to go into the promised land, they suddenly remembered the promise that they had made to Joseph. So they went to the cemetery and they dug up the bones of Joseph and put the bones of Joseph in a box, and then they, if you read the, the story of the Exodus, how they came up out of the Red Sea, it says they carried the bones of Joseph with them. Specifically, the bones of Joseph traveled with the Israelites, and I can see as those bones were crossing the Red Sea, the bones were rattling, and they were shouting, I'm going home, I'm going home. The Word of God is true. The Word of God is true. 400 years. And not only that, after those 400 years, for 40 years they carried the bones of Joseph around in the wilderness. And when they finally took the land, they buried the bones of Joseph. He was a man who had faith that stretched more than 400 years into the future. Faith sees the future. Hallelujah. Faith sees the future. Let's look at this. Let's look at verse 24. They talk about Moses, another one of the heroes of faith. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. 
By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now it tells us how Moses, he left everything. You know, sometimes we think faith is to take a hold of things. But there are times faith is to let go of things. Moses became the prince of Egypt. And then one day he discovered who he really was. So it says, by faith he forsook Egypt. By faith he left Egypt. And I'm sure there must have been people that said, Moses, don't do that. Don't be a fool. There must be a reason why God put you in this position. God gave you, I mean, your story is so unique. God made you a prince of Egypt so that you can, once the king dies and you become the number one guy, you can bring your people out and you can do whatever you want. But no, no, no. Not Moses. He did everything the wrong way. Right? He chose to suffer. He chose to leave Egypt. And then it says... Choosing rather to suffer with the people of God. He chose to suffer. Then he says, he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Then he says, verse 27, it tells us why. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Faith is to see him who is invisible. When you catch a vision of Jesus, everything changes. Hallelujah. Moses had a vision of Jesus. He saw him who was invisible. And to take a hold of that, you win, once you see him, once you experience him, to take a hold of him, you will let go of everything. And we see that in the writings of Paul. He said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death so that I can attain a resurrection like him. You know, Paul had a vision of Jesus and he said, you know what? I want to be like Jesus even what it cost me is to suffer a horrible, painful death like him. If that's what it's going to cost me, I'm willing to do that because I want to know him and I want to know the power of his resurrection. Moses saw the invisible. And once you see the invisible, everything changes. And those who don't see the invisible, who don't see what you see, they will never understand you. Because for them you are foolish. But Moses saw the invisible. Anyway. If you look at. Verse 31. Here's this, another one on this list of faith. I, I mean it's just amazing. And it says. By faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them. That believed not. When she had received the spies with peace. Rahab was a prostitute who lived in the city of Jericho. You know, a prostitute has no respect from anybody. A prostitute is despised. And she was a prostitute. So, 
So we had these spies. Moses sent him, uh, sent in uh, two, uh, sorry, Joshua sent in these two spies to spy out the land. And then they were kind of getting caught, discovered. So they hid in the house of Rahab, the prostitute, and she hid them. And then they asked Rahab, why did you risk the wrath, the anger of your king by saving us? And Rahab told them, he said, simple. He says, we, the people of Jericho, have heard how your God brought you out of Egypt and how he destroyed your enemies before you. And now when you came here, uh, our hearts were stricken with fear. Uh, and he says, so, but the amazing thing was that none of them, nobody else decided, well, these are God's people, let us join them. They decided to fight them and resist them because of their pride. But the only one who said, well, their God is the only true God. And she said, I want to follow him. And she was a prostitute, but she chose to follow God. It doesn't matter who you are or what is written on your CV or what your list of sins are. It doesn't matter. You can choose to follow Jesus and your life will change. And so when, when the Israelites finally came and took Jericho, Rahab's life was spared. Her life was spared, and not only was she spared, she became one of the Israelites, and she got married. She was a prostitute. Who would marry her? Somebody married her. And not only that, but she became one of the ancestors of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was like God wanted to make a point. And if you read the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, it's all mess. It's all men. He begat him and he begat him and he died and he begat him. He begat him. And in the list of this man, there's the name of one woman, Rahab, a prostitute. Why? Because her faith pleased God so much that when Matthew was writing his book, God stopped him, the Holy Spirit stopped him. He said, uh, uh, Matthew, it's all guys. Put Rahab's in there, name that. I want her name to be in there. By faith, Rahab. It doesn't matter what you have done with your life or who you are. If you choose Jesus, you know what? He says, see, I make all things new. By faith, Rahab. <coughs> and then you look at those names and what more... What shall I more say? For the time would fail me to talk about Gideon and of Barak and of Samson. You look at the story of Barak. Barak, was, it was, he was an interesting man because Barak's father was a very well-to-do man. He was like a chief or something. And he was married and he, you know, he had children. But he slept with a prostitute. And the prostitute had a son called Barak. And so what he did, what Barak's father did, he brought this prostitute son, which was his son, into his family and raised him with his other children. But when his, the father died, the family rejected Barak. They said, we don't want you. You're the son of a prostitute. You don't belong to us. So Barak was rejected. He went off on his own. Nobody wanted to have anything to do with him, but he became a mighty warrior. And so when the, when the Philistines or whoever else it was, they were attacking, 
Israel and Israel had their backs to the wall and they thought of Barak. They suddenly thought of Barak in their need. They said, let's, let's bring him. Yeah, but we rejected him. But let's beg him to come back. So they went to Barak and said, Barak, listen, you know, we are sorry for what we did, but can you come and help us? Barak says, I will come, but I've got to be your chief. And so they said, okay. So suddenly Barak came and he was the one who defeated their enemies and he became a hero. Faith overcomes bad heritage. It doesn't matter what your father was, what your mother was, whether she was a prostitute or he was a drunk or whatever he was. You can't live your life blaming the, you know, your ancestors. You, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't live your life. You, you choose Jesus and walk with him because that's what you are. When you walk with Jesus, that's what you are. The Bible says all things have passed away. All things have become new. Barak, and then you have Samson in that list. Now, Samson is an interesting fellow. Samson, if you read the story of Samson, <laughs> I mean, the man really fascinates me. Samson's parents couldn't have children. And they prayed, especially his mother prayed and believed God. And Samson was born as a result of prayer and faith. And not only that, but Samson, when he was growing up, when he was of a young age, he was familiar with the moving of the Holy Spirit. I mean, the Holy Spirit began to move, the Holy Spirit began to move in that kid when he was small. So Samson grew up familiar with the Holy Spirit because God had a calling upon his life. God had an anointing for him. So when Samson grew up, Samson had the Spirit of God upon him because he was called by God to deliver his people, the Israelites, from the Philistines. But if you look at the life of Samson, you know, you, you read about his mighty feats of strength and all that. He Once, you know, the Israelites came, he took, he took a jawbone of a donkey, killed a couple of thousand of them. I mean, mighty feats of strength. But the thing was that he never did anything to deliver his own people. In fact, all his mighty feats of strength were done by him to get him out of trouble, out of situations that he has gotten into because of his own flesh, his own skin, his own sin. Samson's problem, he loved women. He had an unusual libido or sex drive. He was sleeping with women. He had different girlfriends and, and he had girlfriends and women and he was sleeping and, and it's a dangerous combination. You, you know, he has the anointing of God. He knows the power of the Holy Spirit and he's sleeping around with women. He's getting into trouble. And the part that I don't understand that is mind boggling is how God could overlook Kib's situation and still let his anointing be of Samson. And it got the worst part was when he went to Gaza, was sleeping with a prostitute. He was in a prostitute's bed. And somebody said, Samson, the Philistines are here. And Samson gets out of bed, puts his pants on, gets out to the street, and the anointing comes on him.
I mean, for me, if I, if I get angry at somebody, I feel like I lose the anointing. It takes me a lot of repentance to get it back. But Samson could be sleeping with a prostitute, gets up, he picks up the gates of the city and walks out. Of, but what he didn't know was that the devil was setting him up. And you know the end of the story, how Samson, he, he finally, I mean, he met Delilah and she took him for everything he had and he, he you know, he lost the, the, he lost the anointing, lost everything. And the next thing you know, he's a slave. He's been blinded, lost his sight, and he's kind of going around in circles, not going anywhere. And then they finally use him as an entertainer to entertain people with feats of strength. They took him to this place they had, and all the Philistine leaders were gathered there. And, and right then, on the last day of his life, Something came back to him. He realized what he had lost and how he had wasted his whole life. His whole life had been wasted. He had not done what God has called him to do. And when that realization came, he said, please put me between the walls, the pillars of the temple. Because he was blind, they put him there. And then you should read his last prayer. He said, oh God, oh God, Send me your power one more time, one last time. And God answered that prayer. And Samson began to shake the pillars of the temple because the anointing was now back. And the temple collapsed and all the leaders of the, Philippi, of the Philistines were killed. And Samson achieved in his death what he should have done in his life. A life was wasted. But because of his repentance, he fulfilled God's calling on his life. And can you imagine a life that was wasted, but that one last moment of faith, that one last cry to God propelled him from the list of failures to the list of heroes of Hebrews chapter 11. Wow. How great is the mercy of God. How God restores and raises up. At that last moment, that last prayer, the last move of the anointing of the Holy Spirit propelled Samson out of the list of failures and has-beens to the list of heroes of faith. That's why God says, by faith, Samson. Hallelujah. And he is right next to Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. When God restores, he fully restores. Put Samson's name right there among the prophets. Anyway, so here we have the list. And then it says, we're going to chapter 12, okay? I'm going to wrap this up. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easy beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame 
and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So here the writer of the book of Hebrews, he finishes this account of the heroes of faith by, he's actually with his words, he's painting the picture of a stadium or an arena. And there's a race going on. It's like a relay race. And now he says that we are running the final leg of that relay race. When you run a relay race, you pass the baton on to the next guy who passes his baton to, to the next guy. And so now the baton is in our hands. That's what he's saying. Well, we are running this race. We are all running. And then he says, those who have gone before us, who have finished their race, they're in the stands. They're the cloud of witnesses. And they're cheering us on. They're cheering us on. Because they did their part, now you and I have to do our part. And then he tells us how to run this race. And it's simple, saying two things. Firstly, he says, lose every weight. Because when you run a race, you don't run a race carrying a heavy backpack. You run light. Lose every weight. And then he says, and the sin which does so easily beset us. Now, sin, we understand. The first thing about sin here is that sin can attach itself to you very easily. Never say it never happens to me. Nobody's immune. Sin can attach itself to you very easily unless you are careful. So there's two things you do. Firstly, you're careful. You don't go where sin can attach itself to you. But if sin does attach itself to you, God's plan B is called repentance. Be quick to make things right. Don't entertain sin. Don't keep it in your life. Don't harbor it in your life. Let go of it. But then what are weights? Weights are things that are not necessarily sin. But they hold you back from serving God. And it's different from person to person. The weights in your life can be different than weights in my life. Sometimes you just have, it's not a question of right or wrong, but anything that hinders you from fully running your race is a weight. It doesn't have to be a sinful thing. You know, let me tell you my story. I'm not talking about you, my story. I've got a good collection of guns, okay? I used to hunt. I've got a whole bunch of rifles and pistols. And, and uh, I grew up hunting. But then I, I stopped because it became so important to me. And I, I, and I realized that, you know, when the deer season starts, I should be away overseas preaching. So I had a choice. So I went overseas and preached. That's when I do my crusades in Asia. So I haven't shot my gun for maybe 20, 24 years. Right? Not yeah. that it's sinful. But anything. I used to fish. Oh my goodness. I loved hunting and fishing were my thing. So I, don't, I haven't hunted and fished a long time. It was my way. It may not be that way for you. But for me it was. 
But I've learned one thing, to gladly let go of things that get in the way that come when it comes to the plan of God. So what are the idols in your life? You know, what, what are the things in your life? Maybe good things. I'm not saying, I'm talking about sinful things. I'm talking about good things. What are the idols in your life that take your time, that keep you from fully becoming the man of God or the woman of God that you would otherwise be? What is it? I can't define them for you, but you know what I'm talking about. And it's often perfectly legitimate things. Not, and that's what he's talking about. He said, let go of sin and let go of the weights. Let go of weights. Let things. And weights can also be religious traditions. Religious traditions. You know, this thing about faith and healing, all that. I know it's in the Bible, but you know, I grew up Baptist in the first church of the refrigerator. <laughs> my grandfather was the bishop. You know, my whole family is there. I like you guys at Cornerstone, but you know, this is not really, that's a weight. You understand what I'm saying? Right? You're so attached to, I mean, it can be religious traditions. It can be things that, you know, that's really, there's no scriptural reason for you, but it's just a thing. It's like an idol for you. Right? He says, you let go of things. So, as you run the final lap, and we are close to the finishing line, and it's amazing because it says, he says, let us run with patience that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. Because we are so close to the finishing line. And you know, they have a tape at the finishing line. And you have the, you have the stadium. The arena is full of thousands of witnesses who are shouting your name, who are cheering you on, and are shouting to you, don't give up, don't give up, just a little bit more to go. But there is somebody who is cheering you on more than anybody else, and he's standing on the other side of the finishing line, and his name is Jesus. So you run the race with your eyes fixed, not on the finishing line, but on the one who is behind the finishing line waiting for you to finish with his arms wide open. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is cheering you on because he has invested everything he has in you because he doesn't want you to fail. You are not programmed to fail. You are programmed to win and you are going to finish and you're going to finish well and you're going to finish strong because Jesus believes in you. Even when you don't believe in yourself, he is shouting and he is cheering you on. Looking unto Jesus. Then he says he's the author and the finisher of faith. That means he's the one who got you into this thing. Huh? He's the one who fired the starting gun. He's the one who picked you out of the world and put you right here for you to run the race. He filled you with the Holy Ghost. He saved you, believes in you, and he's the one cheering you on, and he wants you to finish the race. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. He says, with Jesus, there's many pictures of Jesus. There's a Christmas Jesus, baby in a manger. There's an Easter Jesus who's wearing a white gown standing outside a tomb. But this is another Jesus. 
This is the Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the shame of the cross. What was the joy that was set before him? The joy of seeing a blood-washed humanity in heaven. When Jesus looked down from heaven and he saw you and me and the whole of humanity lost in the flames of hell, he said to the Father, I'm going to change that. And he came and walked on this earth. And the joy that was set before him was the joy of seeing a blood-washed humanity that John saw in the book of Revelations standing around the throne of God. He says there were 10,000 times 10,000 and they stood around the throne of the Lamb worshiping the Lord. That was the joy that, that, that Jesus saw before him. But in order to obtain that joy, he had to go through the suffering of the cross, the pain of the cross. That Jesus we look at. That Jesus who went so far, who suffered so much to save me and to save you. That's the Jesus I look at. So the goal of my life is not just to see myself and my family in heaven. But I want to see humanity. I want to see Africa washed in the blood of Jesus. I want to see the nations where I set my foot. I want to see, I want to see those people washed in the blood of Jesus. Many years ago, when I was in Sweden, I was, you know, I was, I was just a beginner doing crusades. And I remember I was at a meeting, a friend of mine preached and, and suddenly the Holy Ghost came upon me and I just sat in my chair and I cried. And when I I, I opened my eyes, everybody was gone. I'm the last one who was left and they were switching off the lights and I was just crying. I don't know what was going on to me. So I went to the speaker's room and my friend who spoke that evening, he was, he was, he was standing there and he looked at me, he says, Christopher, what do you want? I said, I want a million souls for Jesus. I want one million souls for Jesus. And I, I just, he just hugged my neck and he began to cry with me. And he says, Father, give him a million souls for Jesus. I'll never forget that. But that was like 30 years ago. And in the past 30 years, I'm seeing about one million people come to Jesus every year. But you see, I'm insatiable. I'm I cannot stop. I can't say that I won a million souls for Jesus and I'm done. There has to be more. There has to be more because I follow a Jesus who in order to obtain the joy that was set before him endured the shame of the cross. I don't have to endure the shame of the cross. Thank God for that. But I want to run. Letting go of sin. My biggest enemy is not the devil, it's my flesh. Letting go of my sin, letting go of my flesh, letting go of things that bind me because I got my eyes on the goal, on the one who sacrificed everything so that others may be saved. Beloved, that's what it's all about. So that mankind may be saved. Your name, my name, Listen, I can guarantee you one thing. It's already written on the book of life. You cannot do anything 
more for that. But one thing we can do, we can lay our lives down so that others may also know him. Hallelujah.